वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक द सिंह टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द इम्प्लीकेशंस ऑफ पॉवर्टी विल थिंक अबाउट पॉवर्टी एज अ कॉज एंड व्हाट इट माइट लीड टू इन द लॉन्ग एंड शॉर्ट रन व्हाट आर द साइकोलॉजिकल कॉन्सिक्वेंसेस ऑफ पॉवर्टी डज पॉवर्टी रिप्रोड्यूस इटसेल्फ what are the feedback loops between economic psychological and social factors in this context are the childhood antecedents of adult health do the poor die earlier and how does law often equate the poor to criminals should society fear poverty are there trade offs involved in dealing with the effects of poverty would a richer world be a better world can poverty in the interim be made more bearable we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor vikram patel he is a psychiatrist and a professor of global health at harvard medical school dr vijendra rao he works in the research department at the world bank but he tries to understand the intersections between economics sociology and political science in the context of poor communities and what can be done about them and dr anup surendranath he teaches constitutional law at national law university in delhi he also heads the center on death penalty Uh, so biju why don't we set the ball rolling with you um maybe with the flipped question of what does poverty cause I mean, is, is is there a way of having a somewhat rigorous grip on that question i understand that it would be a feedback loop and cause and effect are not that clearly delineated it may be a cause and an effect at the same time but is there a way of saying what poverty causes why does it worry you the sociologist knew the anthropologist knew the economist knew I mean, I think the two aspects to that question. The first aspect is what is poverty, um, because it's not just a monetary definition. It's not just a monetary definition, and it's also people who talk about poverty haven't usually experienced poverty themselves, uh, in the sense of having experienced extreme deprivation. They usually come from the middle or upper class. So, it's it's they who are doing the defining often, yeah, and uh, so. poverty itself is a category that is there because we want to do something about it yeah so so in that sense one has to be aware of that thinking so do about you, do, any, do you mean that there's a somewhat patronizing attitude to, it's it's not it's not patronizing in the in, in that sense i would say it's paternalistic right sure. that, uh, more than patronizing there's a certain paternalism associated with thinking about poverty right so i would rather think about deprivation i would rather think about inequality mm-hmm. rather than poverty per se mm-hmm. yeah. so we can ask slightly different question what does deprivation cause yeah what does deprivation cause or what does inequality cause what does inequality cause and right. i think most social problems as we see them today can be attributed at least partially or totally to issues of inequality and deprivation yeah, because uh, again inequ- you have to think about inequality of what uh, deprivation of what the, everything is affected in many dimensions there's a material dimension there is a psychic dimension there's a social dimension of course there's a political and power dimension and they all intersect 
so in effect, societies that are rigid uh, and reproduce their rigid structures generation after generation are those that... You, uh, you mean in a class sense? In a class sense, but you know, it's, it's not just class. Uh, I mean, it's what we call an inequality trap. Right. I mean, this class, uh, but, but, but class, I mean, when you use the word class, you're, you're talking about certain literatures. Yeah, sure. so, so I would rather just think about an inequality trap in the sense that it's, these are societies that don't have intergeneration mobility. These are societies that are very little of it. These are societies where, because of the, what, what, what the world is used as intersectionality, the idea that, the, idea that uh, uh, the various dimensions of deprivation hmm. intersect with one another, the various dimensions of privilege intersect with one another to keep that distribution stable across many generations. Yeah? So all of that is... So then is, by deprivation, you mean exclusion, exclusion to... Exclusion of different kinds, hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the pathologies associated with exclusion. Hmm. The fact that societies have uh, uh, heterogeneous elements which make them difficult to come together. So you have problems with collective action, problems with coordination, problems with conflict, problems with all the things associated with conflict. And uh, in the economic slash monetary sense, what would it be an exclusion from? Um, a lot of these feel like social... Forms well, of no, exclusion. No, no, social forms totally of exclusion fine. affect economic exclusion. So, right. I mean, inequality is an opportunity. Right. Uh, are how economists like to think about it, which means they don't have access to education, health, and you know all the stuff that allows you to make a better life for yourself. The capabilities using Amartya Sen's language, but the but but what we sometimes forget is that inequalities of opportunity are also deeply correlated with what we might call inequalities of agency. Right. Mm. So they they prevent access to various things that will in fact allow you to use those opportunities to make a better life for yourself. I mean, one thing characteristic in India now is the whole bunch of people with BAs or BSEs who are back uh, doing what their parents used to do, which is right. manual labor. You know, so so th th that, that, that tells you there's something deeper than just economic deprivation going on. Right. What does it mean to you, Vikram? I mean, is there... Um, you're a psychiatrist. Um, does does poverty worry you? Do you think of the poor community as a different? Are, are they exposed to different forms of risks from a psychiatric psychological standpoint? Where are you on this? And what is somewhat counterintuitive for you as you think about it? So a couple of things. I want to start off where Biju just reminded us that the word poverty actually captures quite different kinds of experiences. And I think it's important to distinguish absolute deprivation mm. of the kind that is very common in India mm. um, with relative deprivation of the kind that is common globally. Just uh, being on this side of the poverty line was... Well, yeah, you know, so for example, in the other country that I live in, in the US, absolute deprivation is relatively rare compared to India if you right. take a sort of arbitrary cut point of how much you earn. However, relative deprivation or inequality, which Biju spoke about, is actually astonishingly large. Mm. Uh, and actually, India, you have the double whammy. Mm. You not only have very high levels of absolute deprivation, but you also have very high levels and rising levels of inequality. Now, so one would imagine that for the psychiatrist in you, the relative deprivation shouldn't matter that much, but it sounds like actually, it does. Actually, it does. Actually, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Think about this, okay? If Think about what it would do to you if you had to live in a Bombay slum mm. uh, right next to the Hyatt Hotel sure. at the airport. Uh, and every single morning, you woke up and saw that incredible wealth and flights going all around the world when your life was on a garbage heap. And then imagine that is your life now and that there is no hope of 
of escape, uh, then imagine what it does to your mind. And I think it's pretty evident that actually inequality of that kind can only be damaging to your mental health. And actually, we have more objective evidence, which I can turn to later. What kind of stress is that? Does it actually lead to... Well, there's a number of mechanisms, you know. So the question is, first of all, is there a relationship? I mean, yes, a, it's yes. a legitimate oh. question, isn't it? Yeah. Is there a relationship? So if we take absolute deprivation, not surprisingly, um, some epidemiologists call it the mother of all diseases, that is to say poverty. Mm -hmm. And indeed, this is true also for mental health problems. Barring some very rare exceptions, you know, audit oddities like eczema, um, basically all health conditions are far commoner in the poor than in the better off. Um, and that also includes most mental health conditions. Even those conditions that you associate with affluent lifestyles like diabetes uh, are also now changing their uh, epidemiological profile and becoming commoner in the poor because richer people have access to healthier lifestyles, you know, because healthier lifestyles cost more money. And if you think of inequality, relative poverty, people who live in more, that is something you have to look at at a societal level. Uh, because that is a societal uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, construct rather than an individual construct. Right. So the more unequal a society, the higher the burden of health problems like depression, suicide, uh, delinquency, and substance abuse. Uh, not only in the poor, by the way. That is the interesting thing about inequality. Inequality affects everyone. Uh, unlike absolute deprivation, which more uh, significantly affects the poor because they're exposed to the deprivations that are absolute, like not enough food or, or you know, highly polluted environments, inequality affects the rich as well as the poor. So an unequal society would have higher incidence of... Yeah. And yeah. it's across the strata. But do, 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 do you see that more in the more disadvantaged ones? No. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but because they have the double whammy, right? Right. Because, the, you know, they also have absolute poverty to deal with. But the point I'm making here is that to live in a society where there is huge inequality is damaging to the rich as well. One has to emphasize this. Right. That it's, it's, you, can't, you can't insulate yourself from social disorder if you live in an unequal society. You can try and pretend by having high walls and by having cars that are constantly sealed off from the reality of the world around you by reading your newspaper when there's a kid knocking on your, on your window. You, you can try, but it will wear you down day after day after day. So ultimately, it'll also affect your health. And Rikram, obviously you mean this in a rigorous enough way. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's, there's it's, the it's, epidemiological it's a evidence. difficult to wrap one's head around it, that if, if one were somewhat well off in an unequal society, now why does the status of the others matter so much to my health? Um, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. It's easier to understand the other, uh, the, the, the the fact other that way it around. affects the poor, right? Yes. Of course, that's straightforward. It's something which psychologists call... And you have an uh, intuition backing it, but the Yeah, you know, they say call it cognitive comparison. I mean, it's just interesting, uh, you know, just yesterday, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister was giving a talk to students. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I thought that he said something really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was telling the students uh, that as the exams are coming up, uh, to protect themselves from stress, mm -hmm. one of the major points he made was, do not compare yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was pretty remarkable. He said, do not compare yourself to other students. And he told the parents in the hall as well, do not compare your child with someone else's child because each child is gifted. Now, this is a nice, very uh, rosy way Way of presenting uh, the world to parents and children. The truth is actually a lot harsher. Yeah. It is impossible, completely impossible, uh, as a human being not to compare yourself, especially when the disparities 
are so grotesque as they are in India today. So yes, it is understandable if for the poor, right? Because they're comparing themselves, they has their social defeat. There's a whole lot of psychological mechanisms that will make you feel miserable about yourself. Why the rich? Why do the rich feel that miserable? That is a good question. And you know, this, this, so there's an epidemiological fact: the rich live shorter lives in unequal countries compared to the rich in. in is that more just equal? because it happens to be a different kind of stress? Now the well, origins may be different. Yeah, maybe. So I mean, if I can just venture something, I mean, all of us feel inequality at some. All of us feel inequality at some level or the other. So however right. rich you are, right? There's always a Warren Buffett above you, right? <laughs> so in that sense, and and and. You may not face the absolute deprivation that the poor feel, but you feel a relative deprivation regardless of where you are. That's a good point. And, mm. and that means the jealousy and the envy that comes from that might affect your psychological well-being. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess the other thing, you know, I, I've just come from South Africa and where, you know, uh, which is also a desperately unequal country uh, and where, you know, you, could, you can almost see the wealthy neighborhoods because you can, you can see the walls. You know, the walls are huge with, you know, barbed <laughs> wire and dogs and guards and guards. And you got to think, what kind of life is that? Imagine spending your life with all your money uh, and all your wealth protected from everyone around you. Surely this is not the kind of freedom that you expected your wealth to buy. Freedom is about open doors. It's about an open society. In India, we are moving towards an unfree society. I think the, the thing that is worth uh, disentangling a little bit, Vikram, and I know we've been on it for a while, is that one gets the ethical point. Um, but is it a psychiatric point as well? And it sounds like it is. Well, you know what? First of all, let me be very clear. If you say psychiatric in a clinical sense, yeah, uh, I think that's perhaps a little bit less real, um, less likely. Okay, you know, psychiatric diseases, yes, they are more common amongst the poor. There's no question, just as physical health conditions are. But here, I'm talking about well-being hmm. at the level of a population. Hmm. Um, of course, if your population well-being is poor, the number of people who will have more mental health problems will naturally be greater because your whole curve, as it were, of well-being has shifted sure. in the unhealthy direction. Um, so I wouldn't distinguish psychiatric from just psychological. Sure. Where are you on this, Anup? Do you what what is the poor or who is the poor for law under law? Yeah, is it a risk factor? Do you worry about it? Does law worry about it? I, th I think the law interacts with poverty largely in let's say in, in about three ways I would think um, mm -hmm. I think the most the harshest way in which it interacts with poverty is to criminalize poverty right? um, you have laws criminalizing beggary vagrancy uh, sex work uh, there the the law seeks to punish your vulnerability right and and punish vulnerability with criminal sanction right uh, and um, that's that's one broad category and we can talk more about how problematic is that it, it is extremely problematic because the harshest power of the state is being used on the most on the vulnerable most vulnerable, vulnerable the population weakest. on the weakest right so in that sense uh, it's it's i would think it's the sharpest edge in the way the law so what interacts. is the at a theoretical conceptual level what's the state's justification for it right. Uh, I think the the state seeks to balance that kind of the effects of that vulnerability with what it considers is the larger good of the society. Right. So with with sex work, I 
I guess what this, the law is trying to do is to discourage uh, sex work from, uh, it, and you could you could come at sex work at from through multiple points. You could sure. say it's there's a moral aspect to it in terms of what the state perceives its moral impact on society to be, or you could say that the what the state is really trying to do. Uh, perhaps, is to say that sex workers are extremely vulnerable, are put in very vulnerable situations. Uh, there's human trafficking. So it's it's trying to dissuade that kind of uh, activity and not and, and may not just be an uh, interest in morality of society. Uh, so I think it, it, but it tries to achieve these things through very harsh mechanisms of using criminal law to uh, get at these uh, problems. Um, and I think sort of other way is uh, I of what a lot less looked at and analyzed is how the law in many parts ignores the poor, right? In terms of um, if if I mean again I'm, I'm just going back to criminal law, um, the classic conundrum of um, if 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 a poor person steals food from let's say a bakery or a restaurant or whatever, right? The law has very little space or very little imagination, right, in in its structure, to say uh, what is the criminal responsibility of such a person, and and it's very complicated when you when you start when you start thinking of trying to factor this. Sorry, I'm not sure I understand this. Uh, is is the point where that you don't know how to punish such an aberrant right. behavior? So, no, I'm, I'm saying that in the definition of theft. Mm-hmm. And that the punishment for theft, mm-hmm. right? Um, How is theft by a rich person different from a theft, theft by a by, poor yes, person? Yes, and and should and should and should the law reflect that, or should the law ignore that? Right? Uh, that you're saying uh, theft is um, criminalized in society. It's something that society wants to guard against. Uh, but for the poor, however, we might define the poor, right? Uh, should the law how should the law try to uh, account for this vulnerability? Uh, should it say that if a hungry person who's and not had any food for one week steals food, should that not be a crime? Right. Or or should or would we slightly be more nuanced and say, well, it it will still be a crime, but perhaps the responsibility we seek to attach uh, might be very different. Right. That that. Uh, if as a very rich sounds like a very tough problem, Anu. Yes, um, it it is. It's a very tough one. It it is a tough one for because because at the core of any legal system, a sort of a liberal legal system, is the commitment to the rule of law. That and which in stripped of everything else, it's that the law applicable to everyone is the same in a neutral kind in of in a way. neutral, and that neutrality becomes and the law's neutrality in ignoring the specifics of. Um, individual situations, right, and particularly poverty, uh, becomes problematic, and 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 it's something to think about as to how uh, we would. Uh, I mean, are there tentative proposals to how one might go about? It it seems like one of those problems which will be open even two hundred years later. Yeah, it it's it certainly will be, and I, I and I wonder if, and I I think the answer to that would lie very differently in terms of if we were talking of access to, I mean, in terms of the criminal legal system, the civil legal system, uh, if you are looking at access to 
benefits through the law. Uh, I think the answers to each of these would start differing in terms of how the law should account for poverty. Sure. Uh, and and I think the sort of one other thing I would talk about is the law in many ways tries to alleviate poverty mm-hmm. uh, in terms of let's say in terms of welfare measures or guaranteed employment that's where you interact with people like biju yeah. economics exactly and and and, and i think the policy side of yeah, the policy side of it and and to and and not going into specifics of any law i think the broader questions that emerge in that laws interaction with policy on on these grounds is um and what has fascinated me always is can the law demand that the poor however we might define them do xyz things to access uh, certain benefits right so can can the law demand that i necessarily go for some uh, in in let's say taking a hypothetical that i necessarily go for some vocational training if i am to get my yeah uh, whatever benefits, benefits or whatever kind right? can yeah. can the law demand that mm-hmm. can the state demand that right because anything the answer to that it becomes a transaction of sorts yes, so exactly. obviously there is that alleviation side exactly. of it you want to skill them in something exactly. or the other and, but it also raises a question of how does a law or the how does a state view the poor mm-hmm. right in saying that uh you you have to go for four hours of vocational training um every week before we give you your uh food allowance or whatever um what message i mean and, and i think i'm interested is, is, in is is a point that it's too large a hammer it's being a, applied across the board is that the point not taking do you see a problem there biju yes <laughs> but 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 uh, let me let me just explain so i think the broader question is and this also raises uh, something goes to something vikram was saying how do we create a society what are the institutional structures we can create within a society so that the deprivations that come from inequality which exists uh, are easier to deal with allow for more mobility allow for greater hope and allow for greater fulfillment of aspirations so that even if people experience deprivation they see a pathway out of it yeah and are not sort of trapped in it the, the problem is not to me the existence of inequality mm-hmm. it is the fact that people feel trapped within that structure right. yeah, that that's the problem so so how how do you create a different kind of society and what can the law do about it i mean that's, that's a good question I mean, you know this idea of of what in economics is a development economics is a big thing going on now called conditional cash transfers that we will give you benefits if you do such and such if you educate your daughters if you you know uh, go to school more regularly if you if you right. uh, wash your hands before you eat your food all kinds of stuff right but this is just a standard incentive uh punishment no framework. no no it's it's more than that because i mean the other debate is on universal basic income which mm. is that anybody who deserves it but everybody actually deserves a certain basic level of income malaysia has something like that going on right now yeah mm-hmm. uh this is a this is actually a very very big debate going on right now and 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 the different sides of the debate are precisely these which is that conditional cash transfers somehow 
are a more paternalistic way of the state dealing with you. The universal basic income says that everybody is entitled to a certain basic level of living standards, regardless of uh, what what whether you you are well behaved or not. You know, uh, so 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 that so that 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 debate. So the arguments yeah. against uh, something like universal basic income would be that it just oh, allows people to be lazy. No, no, it's, it's, it's an economic argument. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. a, it takes a big chunk of GNP to make sure. it happen. Yeah, sure. Because what I mean to give somebody everybody an adequate living standard means that. you are putting a lot of your money in that so people have to opt in they have to do a certain set of actions and in, society in, in as a whole framework. has to say that i don't want to have you know big airports i want to put my money to universal basic income i mean there's a there's a mm-hmm. national macroeconomic decision that has to be right. that right. has to be made you wanted to say something yeah. so which i was wondering if it goes back to an unresolved tension about uh, poverty and uh, poverty and what to do about poverty um uh, in the sense that when you go for these kind of conditional transfers are you somewhere adopting the understanding that poverty deprivation marginalization um are not structural issues and rather are motivational sort of individual failures yeah, indiv- uh, i mean and and whereas maybe a universal basic income or access universal access to uh uh food grains or or or, or whatever else uh i mean i was just wondering where where you if you were to come down to the normative commitments of these models uh i'm wondering where where no, where think, they uh, yeah I, i no i think it's a very yeah. interesting question i all policies have certain normative commitments i mean even your the point you were making about the death penalty i mean all, all these things have normative commitments uh, sex work you know uh the normative commitments that come in in economic policy making uh currently anyway are often driven from two ideological streams either the sort of socialist marxist stream which is one set or the neoclassical economic scheme which is another set now they're sticking with the neoclassical school because that's the one in vogue it treats i mean it's 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 based on the idea of methodological individualism that that an an individual is an automaton who functions within him or herself or within the family yeah slowly economists are beginning to question that a, a, a big big deal which is why things like universal basic income are even being talked about now by economists right because we're beginning to recognize 200 years late that human beings are social animals and we're political animals you know and and and, and psychological animals uh, of course psychology psychology also is methodologically individualistic or comes from that tradition of course that's also changing rapidly but as you start seeing the social structures and under, under which human beings are embedded mm-hmm. yeah and therefore correlate to the economic power and power relationships uh you start seeing policy differently so one big question becomes in that frame how do we think of opportunity yeah because it doesn't immediately you see that opportunity is not enough by providing everybody free schooling you're not going to address the problem of inequality because they may still not be able to access the jobs that come from the school yeah because uh, somebody's grandson gets that access before you they may not be able to access the legal system access the political system so to me that's about agency and when you start thinking about inequalities in agency you start dealing with the intersectionality of inequality the, the intersectionality between income assets culture society politics psychology all of the above and actually the law can do something about it and in fact in india the law has and that's the 73rd amendment to the indian constitution it's one of the more remarkable things in indian constitution is that every rural citizen has access to a space where they can directly confront the state which is called the gram sabha 
yeah right and it allows them to say whatever they want to the local powers yeah say it with 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 within a space where they can have relative freedom i mean we've been studying these things for some time we find people questioning caste structures questioning you know i'll tell you a very very interesting story that we uh, that came up once in one of these meetings that we we have recorded where you know there's a dalit uh, uh, person in 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 this meeting uh Smeek saying something to the following effect remember these meetings are about beneficiary selection they're not about these macro issues but this fellow says there's a water problem in the village and you know the part of the discussion is what do we do with this water there's there's a drought and so on so the dalit chap says you know in our well there's plenty of water when to come to our well because you know he's living downstream <laughs> now it seems right. like a simple question but what he's saying there is you know you you guys are so stupid you will not drink water from our well when we have plenty of it they're right. questioning the entire social system you know so that that freedom of 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 voice uh, that equal equalization of voice i think is what these kinds of things represent in that sense the law can do something about it yeah. is there is there a, vikram do you think about it systemically or is is it again more i think we are dealing with this tension between individuals and systems this is inevitable i find this always a conversation that always i i i think it's it's actually perhaps a um a false dichotomy mm-hmm. uh, in my mind you know it's never either it's always both uh so for example from the health perspective it baffles me it truly baffles me that when countries are making decisions about investing in the health of their population whether it's addressing the social determinants of health or healthcare delivery as in india today uh and indeed in many other rich countries which are unequal the economic benefits of a socially cohesive society and a healthy society are never really counted it's always like money down the drain <laughs> and i find that the most baffling argument so for example you will hear people say we cannot afford uh universal health coverage in india uh, because we are uh, have a very large population but we can afford for example to give tax credits to very wealthy people or we can afford to have a very very expensive army it's a choice that we are making at a public policy level that really discounts the value of a fairer society as an economic value it is and just is seen that, as an economic loss and is that because it happens in a very long period of time it's because exactly governments are there for 5 years these investments that you make reap dividends over the longer term like any good long term investment and so any government that's there for 5 years is just simply looking at its reelectability and that is hardly going to produce change in terms of public health outcomes or educational outcomes in the short term i believe that's one of the reasons it could there could be other reasons but that certainly seems to me uh, one reason for that going to the issue of health so for example very many people will say you know poverty and mental health are very deeply interconnected through a variety of impacts that poverty has on the human brain uh many people would say that we need to invest primarily in interventions and policy interventions that prevent poverty that is absolutely correct however what do you do about people who are currently living in poverty and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future yeah. we also have to have individual intervention so this goes back to the earlier point is it societal or structural interventions or individual it has to be both just in the same way in healthcare you have to deliver interventions for people who are suffering the consequences of poverty while at the same time investing in interventions that would prevent people from living in conditions of poverty is intervention at an individual level for the poor more difficult somehow 
Yeah, or, it's like the you know the the horse is bolted, right? You're going to not spend a lot more money. I mean, if you if you have to really be cost effective, you want to prevent something, right? It's a bit sure. like say if I if I can prevent diabetes by getting sure. people to have healthier lifestyles, goodness knows I'll save lots and lots of money down the line when they develop diabetes. But we don't live in that kind of perfect world, right? And also, people do have agency of choice. Hmm. So you know, going back to the issue of agency, you know, we don't want to also live in a society where we tell we we control people's behavior in a highly paternalistic way we want to give people agency and opportunity and information to make choices that are in their best interest but we can't force people to make those choices but how's that gone do people make choices which are in their interest yeah generally speaking if given an opportunity if given information uh, let me let me give you an example of let's say for example food mm-hmm I find that currently the whole you know discourse on food has almost become surreal <laughs> so the discourse on food is eat healthily and exercise. Well, that's the other discourse, right? You hear sure. this all the time. You go to rural India. Mm-hmm. First of all, everyone's doing 20 hours of backbreaking labor. The whole idea of exercise is almost surreal in that part of the world. And then when you talk about healthy food, when there is actually no healthy food available, that the only thing that kids can buy is a five rupee packet of chips, right? which is hanging in strips in every little kiosk in the village. It is almost like an insult to the intelligence of poor people to say, you guys are developing all these lifestyle diseases because you don't exercise and because you eat unhealthily. That's what I mean by the sort of um, state level or policy level interventions of choice. If you give people a choice, if carrots and bananas and apples cost less than a packet of chips, I believe that most people will start eating healthily. But is, is but I was just going back to both in terms of uh, health and uh, economic policy, that very often these measures that the state takes tends to be uh, tends to assume that one size will fit all, and 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 is that a challenge? I mean, is that I mean, even let's say for education or or, or nutrition. Presumably, or, if you transfer uh, some agency to the other side, I don't know whether they're given a menu of options and what they so, can I mean, do and not do. I mean, so as Vikram says, let's start with that. It's both. It's individual, it's social, and it's, it's collective and individual. Mm. It's both those things. The problem is that policy generally has moved to one of the extremes. Either it's all collective, in which case you go to the Soviet Union, or it's all individual, in which case you're in sort of neoliberal space, right? Um, how do you create a world of policy where, in fact, it's not one size fits all, where there is freedom of choice, as Vikram says, where the, the, the collective benefits that come from collective action are realized uh, and, and, and are facilitated in some way? So it yeah. sounds like a decentralized world. It is, it is to me, a decentralized world hmm. now. How do we do decentralization properly? You know, and 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 by decentralized, I, I don't just mean you know local governments, which is obviously one important part of it. It's also solving what economists call the coordination failure problem, right, which is which is that how do we get people to act collectively right. in ways that will uh, benefit everybody more than they acted individually. And there has to be a somewhat faithful emergent outcome for the whole thing. For, yeah. So so I mean, and, and, and many many problems of the world today, going from down from climate change to sure. almost everything else, are, are, are the result of that in traffic. So 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 you know, how do you create that world? And 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 there are several elements to it. I think the first element is removing the notion of paternalism. I mean, how do you make policy less paternalistic? Yeah? 
Is, it, and, is there is there such a thing as non-paternalistic policy? Well, I mean, this is this is where I, mean, I think we have to do some. What thinking. does that even mean? Yeah, so th- I guess th- th- that's where we have to do some thinking. You know, and if you look at the different types of policy interventions that are going on in, from a from a more sort of a ideological point of view today, you, you have you have the neo Keynesian type of policy, which is you know has a lot of good stuff, health, education, so on, taken care of, uh, but it's again the state decides what's good for you. You have. Uh, the extreme version of neoliberalism, which is a Hayekian view, which is basically free markets and yeah, just let like, just let individual transactions take care of and, everything, you know, and 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 things will take care of themselves. Or you have what to me is actually quite a scary world, which is the world of nudging, yeah, right. which is which is now becoming very fashionable. The last Nobel Prize in economics was for that. I mean, your institution, Harvard University, is very much uh, behind that now, which is basically that the state will figure out what your pathologies are, why you don't behave in a certain way and push you by manipulating you psychologically but towards that's the just, better... That's just cute paternalism anyway. Oh, it is entirely paternalism, I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, and beca- it's become terribly fashionable and of course people like Cass Sunstein have been arguing that it's not paternalistic because the state can be a benevolent state but that's not always the case. So how do you how do you get around all those things? And it depends me, on the options you give Yeah, people. what are the options? And to me the answer is two things. We have to figure out a way so that poverty is not defined externally but defined within the context of communities. Let people decide who amongst them is deserving of support. Hmm. Yeah? A, and let's do that systematically. From there, let's give those societies the resources to determine how that help is going to happen with the technical support to make it happen well. You can't expect all societies, communities to know how to you know, be good doctors or to be good you know, water engineers. We need, they need to get that sort of support. But let's give them that support, but let them determine how it's going but, to happen. But you know, a stu- yeah. an yeah. arrangement or a scheme of this nature doesn't work for law and for psychiatry. I mean, you know what I mean? Like if you, if, if you don't let the community decide who's at risk, you don't, I mean, eventually it has to be... It's a technical problem, you it's don't. It's a technical right. problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't know if that's exactly what Biju was really alluding to, but certainly, yeah, if uh, if you consider health more generally, you know, and I see mental health as an inextricable part of health, hmm. so I don't see that as being dealt with in a separate way from any other health problem. Um, you know, universal health coverage has been shown time and again, country by country, to be the most cost-effective just, equitable, fair way to get healthcare. This is, of course, for people who already have health problems, uh, although in the broadest definition, universal health coverage also refers to prevention. But strictly speaking, I'm now only referring to treatment and, and care. Right. There, it is the best investment a country can make, and you're right. It's not about communities deciding uh, as much as the... It's, it, is, it is paternalistic. If you consider providing free quality healthcare near your doorstep paternalistic, I'm all for it. <laughs> I completely support that. But that is not the same as commanding people to go seek healthcare. Yeah. That is actually the paternalism that I disagree with. Um, I think it's interesting this issue that we uh, we started this discussion with conditional cash transfer. I'd love to hear from my my colleagues who are economists and and come from the law field. Uh, I have I have a I have a very ambiguous relationship with this idea. You know, it feels on the one hand that it feels a bit like bribing someone yes. um, to do something. Um, and it's like as if they are so, you know, lazy or stupid or whatever, that the only way that you can get them to do something that's good for them is by giving them, them a bit of cash. cash. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the idea that actually there's a fundamental injustice in the way society has been organized. Now, it's not either or. I think the question eventually is what works. I think it's eventually the test has to be 
except, a except that if, if it does work, by the way, in some instances it does work. For example, you know, in some instances, like for example, safe motherhood, you know, it has, uh, depending on whose evaluation you read, it seems to have worked in the sense that um, uh, when there is a cash incentive, mothers tend to go and deliver their babies in hospital. Okay, so it, it, there seems to be some evidence, and I'm sure uh, Abiju will have more evidence plenty as well. Of evidence. However, so that works? yeah, yeah, it does work. Yeah. However, the question is this: Does this postpone? Therefore, the need for a structural intervention, right. uh, for example, to do with taxation, how how public funds are used, because now what you're doing is you're doing little, you know, band-aids, you know, okay, right. we'll, we'll solve this problem by giving people a bit of money to do it. I don't know. I, I, I'm I not an expert Again, enough in that area to know what I the, think what the, the right... one thing I do want to check with you, Vikram, is you touched upon this a while ago, brain development. So can we unpack that a little bit? What exactly goes wrong? So if I were a poor child, a poor toddler born to a poor mother. Sure. That's what? a really, really important question. Because, you know, it's, it, it sounds too hazy and vague to just say mental health. Now, yeah. obviously, there are all kinds yeah. of cognitive abilities and presumably some are impacted more and some less. So, yeah. so uh, I'm going to try and make this very simple. Okay, just, for, just because for me as well, it's a really challenging and complex area. The brain is in a state of incredibly dynamic development from the fetal stage all the way through until your young adulthood. This is actually pretty profound knowledge, which did not exist even 10 years ago. The idea oh, that the brain a- is responding to the environment anatomically and structured, that is to say, in actually the numbers of brain cells and their connectivity, as well as functionally, that is to say, how these nerve cells are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, having accepted that, that the brain is responding to the environment more than any other part of our body, Mm -hmm. then ask the question, what kind of environments will the brain be responding to and how? And it becomes self-evident that if you live in environments in which you are deprived of two major things, physical security, so for example, you don't have enough food, or you're exposed to a lot of infections or poisons, uh, you know, for example, lead, that's pretty straightforward, right? But also psychological deprivations and those take two major forms the first is uh, where your parents are unable to give you a nurturing environment which you can see all the time on the road gangs of India where mothers are working on the streets and the little babies are lying on the side of the road to me this is cruelty of unimaginable proportions Um, the mother is not a bad mother she doesn't have a choice but her child is having damage to that to, to his or her brain by the fact that he or she is not getting maternal affection and attention. And the second... Again, the question is, what kind of damage to the brain? So, essentially, in what two ways, are, What's the nature of risk? The first is your brains are smaller. They're mm-hmm. literally stunted, physically stunted. It mm-hmm. is dramatic. The images that we have now of children who have suffered deprivation. That's crazy. That's so unfortunate. It is shocking. It is not just that your body is smaller. Because, of course, we know, you know, there's a huge amount of stunting in India. A third of our children are stunted. It's not just your physical body that is smaller. It's your brain that is smaller. And when your brain is smaller, it's not only physically smaller and lighter, but it actually has less connections. Uh, The brain is like a computer. Imagine a computer, you know, which simply has fewer whatever processor speeds. Now, here's the interesting thing. We are facing a crisis of learning in our country. About a fifth of our children are in school, but are not learning. And this comes from the independent reports of Education India. The assumption has been that these children are not learning because the schools are bad, which is also true in many instances. It looks like there's a neuroanatomical reason to They this. were not ready for school. 
So the concept of school readiness, that these kids were already impaired, and I like the concept of capabilities. They, you know, you can give a child an opportunity by putting them in school. But they need to be capable to but be able to tap into But they've got to be capable, it. yeah. It's like, a, it's like soil, right? If the soil, you can put any amount of rain on that soil, but if it's not fertile, nothing is going to grow on it. A defense like this won't work in in yeah. front of law. Yeah, I was just going to. I was just going to ask. <laughs> I was just going to ask Vikram exactly that. That this I is just exactly to have what a we try to argue in cases on when the courts reach the sentencing stage after they found somebody is guilty of a crime. Right. Uh, in terms of saying, um, and especially in death penalty cases, where very often you have to present mitigation information where. It does not go to the guilt or the lack of guilt. It's about what punishment and what responsibility should this person have. And the most common thing that uh, defense lawyers present is to say that this person is poor, right? Without making the all sorts of connections that you've just made for us. Uh, but my own sense of that is our courts would never buy that, right? Uh, would never buy that in terms of, and I, and, I, and I see, and this is exactly what we try to push in the cases that we do, the court seems to have have the question that not everybody put in that position, right? In that position of deprivation has ended up becoming a has criminal. ended up be- becoming a criminal, right? And and how do you explain that? And to and of course, to the answer to that would be that uh, each of us respond to these factors very differently. And and we often say that uh, how my how my class of 80 students might respond to a sudden test announced 24 hours from now. 20 of them might react a certain way and five might react some other way and 40 might react in some other way. Uh, But how do we then translate the impact on brain development of uh, deprivation and deprived childhoods? How do we translate it into... Has it been incorporated into at least legal case law and all that at all is uh, uh, i mean i know you're talking of the indian courts but has it been incorporated anywhere at uh, so all can is i it, ask a related question is the science too new uh, i mean vikram is saying this is new science so, so how long firmly. will it take to percolate into the law yeah i think of course the main one main problem has been that the that the courts uh, own and the laws own interaction with science especially in our context is is rather limited and when it does happen it happens in rather skewed very, ways with a, with right very does, yeah very ill-informed lag, yeah. yeah very ill-informed uh, ways um but i was the question i wanted to sort of ask was how do we translate this science that you talked about into questions of responsibility yeah. for actions yeah correct right? and culpability I, yeah. it's it's interesting so you know a few years ago there was that horrific uh, rape in in new delhi and <clears throat> I, I actually studied very closely the journalistic accounts of the lives of those four boys, uh, you know, who had by then been demonized. And I don't know if you remember, there was this whole conversation going on about mental capacity and whether I think one of them was 16 and whether the age of being... The juvenile. Uh, yeah, you juvenile remember that. And, and so what, is, what is the difference between juvenile and adult? It's essentially, the, it's, 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 it's implicit in that is the idea of the capacity to understand, yeah. yeah, which is in effect, you know, a function of the brain, which is to do with mental function. So I, I actually looked very carefully at um, the stories and, you know, most of the journalistic accounts were demonizing these boys. They were horrible, et cetera, et cetera. So Vikram, your point is that not all 16-year-old brains are the same. I mean, no, they're not. Yeah. But so. if you look at these boys' lives, they were damaged 
in ways that are horrifying. I mean, there is, you know, it can it can be hard to imagine more damage children. Uh, you know, children who had been deprived of basic love, security, affection, nutrition, every single child right had been abused. And when I saw this story, it seemed to me that instead of laying the blame on the state's child welfare system, which had totally and utterly failed these four children, we were putting all the blame on those four individuals. That is not to say they were not responsible sure. for their actions, but to completely deny any responsibility of the state's social welfare system seemed like a cop-out to me. It was an insult. And so the question you're asking me today is something that does bother me, that when young people offend, which is the majority of offenders are young, and that the majority of them are offending in the context of substance use, disruptive behavior, violence in their own lives, why do we not hold the state responsible when it is under the right to, uh, the, you know, various children's rights, the Convention of the Right to Protection of Children, it makes the state responsible to ensure the but children law is not. an arm of the state, so, I mean, the... I think when the law responds in such manner to uh, uh, criminal activity, uh, I think it is saying that this is like purely individual failure. It is. It, it does not have... Uh, the imagination to account for the fact that this is as much failure of uh, is poverty recognized as a discriminatory force at all? I know you mentioned that you make that argument yeah. in, in in most cases, right. but it doesn't yeah. look like it. Now, is I mean, on the question of is poverty a, a ground for discrimination? Is it a discriminatory? I think that again raises very interesting questions about uh, the challenges that poverty poses for law. I think all discrimination grounds in that sense assume that um, uh, there is a class, and I don't mean that in the Marxist sense, as, as, as a group, when I, refer to, when I refer to class, I mean it as a group, uh, that it's a ground for discrimination. That there, there's something common between this group, be it race, caste, gender, sexuality. If, if, you, if you take those classic grounds of discrimination, and then take the ground of poverty, right? Uh, it it asks some fundamental questions about poverty and the poor as a group. Uh, what is it? Should poverty be a ground for discrimination? Uh, should you recognize it as a ground for discrimination? And so your point implicit is that it's underemphasized. It's it's underemphasized because I think it poses certain normative difficulties of understanding the poor as a group, as a class. Right. I mean, as a class, as I mean, like something. Ha what do they have in do, common? Do all the poor have? What do they have in common? Common. What What do they have in common to so as to constitute a group? So, what would your argument be? What do they have in common? Yeah, I mean, that's it's, a, it's, it's a difficult it's, question. It's, it's a difficult question to say anything you say that they have in common. But, but look, I mean, there's enough evidence to show that poverty is correlated with various things which you've just listed uh, in India, caste, uh, in India, increasingly, unfortunately, religion, uh, gender in terms of female headed households, uh, and of course, some sort yeah. of shock. I mean, the shock part is the part that may not be have, you know, be legally recognized, but the others are. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think you know. So even some of the other grounds are in a way proxies of uh, poverty yes. in a way. Yes, I mean, I think the, the classic example that uh, a, a poor Dalit woman is differently situated from a poor Dalit man, right? right. And in that sense, th their experience of discrimination is along multiple axes, is around multiple different axes, right? That it's not the same. So both of them might be, in that sense, poor. 
but they are poor differently right in the the, the intersections of I um, I think it's yeah, yeah again I think we are able to emphasize the differences I yeah. think it's But trickier to emphasize exists. the similarity the commonness yeah. so so, so yeah. you know just just to sort of go back to this I mean what Vikram was saying earlier and what what Anup was saying now I think we have to I mean in economics generally speaking I mean there's a very important concept called negative externalities right if there's right. a negative externality yeah, then the state should do something to to solve that right and uh health is increasingly the evidence seems to be that deprivation causes all kinds of mental health issues that affect everybody in that so in that sense it is something that it becomes a collective problem it's not an individual problem if it's a collective problem then we have to find collective solutions to it in the sense that there should be universal healthcare there should be universal basic income uh, you know that, that, that you know that these these are now becoming increasingly parts of the conversation so mental health is a collective problem Well, all health is, to be honest. Yes. But I can see, I can see what we're just saying in a particular way. That yes, I mean, because mental health problems affect more than just your in yourself. It affects right. your families, and uh, oftentimes it affects people around you in 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 other ways. Yeah, I think it is a public health problem. It's a collective problem. That's another way of putting it. But yes, uh, but there are aspects to this that the point you were raising about people being different, yeah, families being different, people getting affected differently. So there's an enormous amount of heterogeneity. difference in how people react to things in in and how they react to circumstances you can have somebody born in extreme deprivation who might reach reach the top of the ladder because they're somehow very i mean a chaiwala can become prime minister you know so there's something there as well how do we how does policy how can policy account for that heterogeneity both at the individual level and the community level i think that is the basic challenge i mean the collective level we kind of more or less at least in theory understand how to do we have it's a political problem to make it happen and you know that that, that uh, and that's something we have to work on but this business of how do we distinguish across different people yeah and and there part of it's a definitional problem because if you define poverty one way you know dollar a day or whatever you might want to see then a lot of apparatus goes into discovering that finding that doing this bpl card business and then there's a whole mess about have we identified the people correctly or not which to me is becomes part of the problem you know and then you, you and, and and a lot of the debates we have on poverty in india today is in fact about that yeah, so, so you 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 mean sense that it's a system that can be rigged it's it's it's, it's more than that it brings in the state into the definitional space right rather than providing the institutional base to allow communities and for individuals to, 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 to for, for agency to happen for right and and, and and for people happen. and communities to decide for themselves how to do it well understanding that doing it in that way also has issues associated it's not like the perfect solution right sure so how do you manage those checks and balances at the community level just as we do in democracy at the national level yeah so 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 I, unfortunately i don't think policy is there i mean in some ways i'm what i'm sort of arguing for i guess is for a more um a more reflective state a more deliberative state yeah that is that that I mean, as science discovers new things it's going to be a, there's going to be a tendency for the state to become more paternalistic because they think now they figured out the science they know how to find the solution which means they're going to deliver it from the top down yeah there's a danger in that uh, right because because that can be not just misused it can be you know result in unexpected pathologies that come from in fact doing that which come from issues of measurement and issues of identification and so on so i think this is where i mean i i don't think i have the answers <laughs> i don't think other 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 poor who are somehow more resilient of course they are but i want to just say, i agree with you entirely but i'm hoping that the science that demonstrates the direct 
impact of deprivation on human brain development that then translates into that individual, and in the case of India, therefore a very large number of individuals growing up undereducated, not because they are unable to, not because the educational system is weakening, but actually because they're fundamentally unable to learn. So that lack of food, for example, or exposure to environmental poisons, or exposure to parents who are so poor themselves that they can't provide parental care. It's a bigger care. problem then. It's not just a, a small kid. It's not that, you know, you got a four foot ten inches kid, but you got a four foot ten inches kid who In, is essentially uh, economically... Right. no longer someone who can produce and interact with the Indian economy. Now, I know that's reducing that Indian kid to something much more narrow, but I'm wondering whether the existence of that science that now connects poverty with economics, I don't know whether, Biju, is that a powerful new piece of information? Oh, it's a tremendously powerful new piece of information. I think it can go two different ways. Yeah, One way is conditional cash transfers or something like that. Let's nudge See, people into... into, into you know, into situations where they're less likely to have stunted children. I mean, in fact, a lot of that is going on now. And that comes. I come back a little bit to your question of does it work or not, because that's a complicated question. It does work in some ways, but then the question is what does does it work mean? Yeah. Uh, but I, what I hope, and I think what you wanted to result in, which I agree hundred percent on, is that it results in a results in a societal solution. Correct. Yeah? But but you know, you 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 mean that in a more bottoms up way. In in a more not not necessarily. I mean, providing universal healthcare is not necessarily bottoms up. You may have bottoms up management of that to make sure that you know the doctor shows up in the clinic. Right. Uh, but but just to have it is is in fact a top. I mean, it's it's it's, it's entirely like, top it's, down. It's, 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 it's entirely yeah. top down. Yeah. But it can be managed in a bottom bottoms up way so that local communities can actually manage their situations. Now, now that goes back to this issue of does it work or not? Conditional cash transfers. Tremendous evidence to show that they work in the following sense: zero randomized trials where you have the condition and you don't, things do get better. Yeah? But, but that's not asking the bigger question. Is that what you want? It's working in that context, but it is assuming away all the normative issues we've been talking about. Do you want a state that does that, that functions like that, that is, provides a nudge so that an individual family takes its kid to the hospital rather than providing the hospital itself? <laughs> okay, that's the big question we have to ask. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to me, it's easier for a state uh, because of five-year constraint that that Vikram raised to do the the can conditional cash transfer rather than to deal with the, dis, the completely dysfunctioning health system or the or the or the or the or, or, or urban problems that, that cause all sorts of environmental health problems or all the other collective problems that that require much more long-term thinking. What's the what's the analog of this problem in your context? So obviously there's some kind of a legal aid available to everybody, is it? I mean, yes, the, the, the system does um, technically provide for free legal aid uh, to the poor. Because just as we've been talking about access to health, access to education, right. there's such a thing as access to justice or yeah, ac the, yeah, legal exactly. system. Access to justice, access to legal services. But you see that uh, the, the kind of access that's provided uh, in its it's in its design and its implementation is completely ineffective uh, for the poor, right? Uh, in the sense that uh, you have, and it's it's a very interesting uh, context in the in the legal system because in many ways uh, the state is imprisoning a disproportionate number of people who are poor, right? And at the same time, then trying to 
come up with this legal aid system uh, that is a very poorly designed legal aid system uh, and an un- and an underfunded legal aid system to try and uh, solve that problem of uh, disproportionately imprisoning uh, incarcerating the poor right and 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 that brings me to a point of saying that the role of the state as far as poverty is concerned is is not just in that sense reacting to poverty right it's very often causing that poverty as well and then reacting to that poverty right that right. that that if you think of uh, communities that have been um, sure yeah you know, taken away from their land uh, agriculture urban poverty slum demolition um, the poor health services that are provided uh, and and more in terms of even political violence right you see a very common feature in urban india that housing discrimination right that certain uh, community certain religious groups uh, sure. are are not do not have access to housing right it's increasingly ghettoized communities yeah. right yeah. uh so that that kind of powerlessness uh that is um um perpetrated through state violence right and 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 i use violence in a much broader sense uh it also contributes uh to this and and there's something i wanted to ask vikram in terms of this feeling of being uh of being poor of is not just one of um having less money having less money and and through that uh not having uh, access to food or health or education absolutely right I, I, it's it's, it's a, much more you know and to circle back to actually right. what biju said at the start of our talk is that the idea of that 1 dollar a day is been made by people who have had never the experience of living in poverty and i remember very well one of the most influential books i read was actually from the bank uh in 2000 called voices of the poor and you might know uh that book uh, led by deepa narayan which um really went around and asked people who live below a dollar a day around the world what does it mean to be poor and amongst the experiences they came up with which were really the hallmarks were exactly the psychological experiences you allude to for example humiliation yeah exactly the day to day humiliation of living in these conditions um of being abused of being mocked of being taunted of being disregarded and another major one was the insecurity the day to day uncertainty of will i still have a job at the end of the day will there be food for my kid at the end of the and day the yeah, and the third is of course the constant threat of violence and i think but how, this how how can poverty be made more bearable obviously the fact well, the, that there isn't enough food well, and the all first question is why should there be poverty i mean i don't know whether making no, it more bearable I, is necessarily no, the right solution it's a, it's a difficult question it's a difficult question so you're it's, right it's a difficult okay. one to achieve so i agree i, I agree no i was just kidding what, <laughs> what what i meant was you know yes it's 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 I, in the idealistic world we should not have that deprivation at all but sure. the real world that we live in right now almost certainly means that is a, that is a future goal no, no, surely no, no, there are happy poor yeah, people but, 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 can, can make a slightly different yeah. point there is absolutely no reason for most countries in the world today to have extreme deprivation at all i agree extreme deprivation can be eliminated what can be eliminated no, is inequality the yeah. point is yeah. that there may not be any reason for such a thing to exist but the fact that it exists th- that's a structural problem yeah and that's a structural problem yeah but there is such a thing as a happy poor person Well, you know, you're is now there? you're now yeah, okay, you're take you're you're taking resilience 
which is an enormously uh, precious human attribute and converting it into happiness. Sure. Uh, resilience is simply the ability of someone to cope with extreme stressors and not go under. Mm. But of course, if there was no resilience, every single person living in a Mumbai slum would have gone under by now. Right. Uh, the fact is that, thank God, our very makeup allows us not only to suffer stress when we feel stress, but also to be able to cope with it. And some of us are endowed with more resilience than others. Some of it is purely genetic. Some of it may have to do with other factors in our environments because not every poor person... Is there, is there gradual loss of resilience? Absolutely. Again, I believe there, that as... There? So, you know, the question you asked about individual differences, it's interesting in the law, everyone is, poor, is, not the, is treated the same, but they're not because different... Each individual has a different life story. So that life story is so unique to that that's individual. That's why every story is heard. Yeah. Well, can every story be heard? Be heard I mean, yeah. that's, that's really the yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. How do we make every story heard? And I think, I think that's the challenge, challenge. Of, as we go forward as a state. How do we make that happen? Uh, and, 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 and therefore get beyond these narrow categorizations of what we call poverty or how we in fact measure things like inequality. You know, mm. there's Gini coefficients mm. and poverty lines of different kinds and how we, you know, mm. all of this turns all these very, very complicated things into one thing, which is which it's not. And they know it's not, but they sort of find that easy to cognitively deal with. I mean, it's, it's a cognitive problem of a definitional uh, in the definitional space of a state cognition. I mean, and the state, but somebody should be, somebody must study but psychological problems of, of the state as a whole you know, and, and, and how it functions. These, these are issues related to that. So I think, I think that... But, but uh, yeah. why don't we end with this, Biju? Yeah. Surely there must be trade-offs, right? Because, I mean, you... So how does it all come together? Um, prosperous society, happy society with very high solidarity. I mean, aren't there trade-offs? Do things go off? Oh, yes, Here and there? Uh, of, of course, there are trade-offs. Uh, you know, there's a standard trade-off called the equity efficiency trade-off, right? I mean, you can make societies more efficient or you can have them more equal. But the point, I think, is that those trade-offs are not as simple as they look. And and there may be situations where, where and this is the point Mikro making earlier, by, by, by dealing with problems that come from inequality, like mental health issues, you may be making society more efficient in the long term. Yeah, and it's and those trade-offs and it and shouldn't be seen as they are seen today as contemporaneous. Right. What may be a, a a tough sort of inequality reducing solution today may to may, may make the world much more efficient in 20, 30 years from now. Yeah, and and as as we say, and that's and that, that's that's the, that's the problem with climate change. It's you know it, all the environmental issues come from there. How do we make society less myopic? Is really the big question. How do we make it more responsive? How do we let it? Uh, allow it to listen better to, to 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 the diversity of folks that are getting affected by these issues. Yeah. These are all questions. I'm surely they're tough ones. They're tough ones, but I think there are answers coming. Such as? Oh gosh, that's another hour. <laughs> What's the future, Vikram? I think exactly as, as, as Biju said, I agree with uh, him. We need leadership at the national and at the global level that recognizes the long-term investments in mm -hmm. eradicating, I would say eradicating deprivations. And I agree with you, poverty is just a kind of a box, a black box. I would say deprivation is a much better way to define this. And in particular, and deprivation. In deprivation, from my perspective, from oh. health and mental health in particular, is deprivations in early life. Right. These are the periods, the, the most developmentally sensitive periods in every human life in which the experiences that you have are going to profoundly affect everything that happens in your adult life. Yeah, And so investments in the first 20 years, indeed, maybe the most importantly, the first 10 years of life will be the best investment society can ever make. Which, is education, just, which is education and health. Security. 
security. <laughs> security I don't mean my terrorism. I mean security sure. in terms of livelihoods, in terms of food, in terms of health and in terms of emotional well-being. These are the broad areas. No child is going to ever be affected by any other threats. It's just the 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 security of at home being fed, of being loved and not having some kind of uh, you know right. catastrophic event happen in their family's lives and if it does happen as occasionally does um, that the family is resilient and the child doesn't actually have to face the consequences what do you know what's the future it looks like i think vikram has a prescription for fewer criminals 30 years out oh it's not just fewer criminals i think that would be the least of the products best that would come out of this in my view is a cohort of young people in this country who are well educated world, who are actually well educated who are engaged with society who are able to contribute and 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 profit from being part of a socially cohesive world just better so, members yeah yeah just absolutely better. and you know reduction in crime to me is a consequence of that sure it's not it's not because crime is reduced it's the other way around i, I would i would think that there are going to be more challenges for this understanding of poverty and marginalization and exclusion in in the next uh 15 20 50 years in terms of climate change uh and this increasing role of technology in our societies uh to achieve efficiency and i think these two aspects are going to uh further problematize our understanding of uh poverty and what poverty causes uh, in terms of uh, climate change and but do uh, you see law incorporating um poverty in 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 and, a, and i think that's going a, to be the big challenge for the rule of law uh, and and its understanding of rule of law uh and that's such a core philosophical commitment uh and and the, the amount of time and effort that is needed to incorporate the complexities that we have discussed over the last hour uh, into the law and into this understanding of rule of law is going to be a major philosophical challenge for us uh, for for legal systems across the world uh, and and you and you see the adverse consequences of this kind of disparity and inequality in in the wave of populist politics across across the globe right and 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 that and and anyway in that sense the rule of law is getting challenged <laughs> right uh, in that sense the rule of law is getting challenged and and as 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 it may as, be forced to incorporate cop, yeah and as, as opposed to and and, as, and, and we'd rather make the choice of more equality towards long term efficiency in order to have these really to avoid these really uh, warped and violent uh deviations from the rule of law sure i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you for coming thank, thank you, you.